0: As a graduate of Oxford's Institute of Social Anthropology, I'm especially pleased to be here today uh, to be this year's Evans Pitchard lecturer. I'd like to thank the Warden and um, All Souls College generally uh, for their invitation and for the hospitality. In the room today are many of my former teachers, mentors, fellow students, and long standing colleagues. Not least among them is David Gellner. Uh, whom I thank uh, very much, David, for that kind introduction. Many, many, other, many many, others deserve to be thanked by name, but to do so now would stretch out endlessly and become a sort of Academy Award acceptance speech that would soon reduce me to, uh, quiv- to a quivering uh, mass of sentimentality, and uh, the warden would probably have to turn on some very loud music uh, to make me shut up. Now, to avoid that, I'd just like to acknowledge everyone here who has taught me, advised me, helped me, and generally inspired me. Thank you. One very important person who could not be here today is my doctoral supervisor, um, John Campbell, who died last September. I'd like to dedicate these lectures to his memory. He contributed hugely to the development of an anthropology of Greece and the Mediterranean. He did so very much in dialogue with Evans Pritchard. According to John, the one book he took with him into the field when he did research in Greece was Evans Evans Pritchard's The Newer. Indeed, it was E.P., and and John Campbell was distantly related to E.P., by the way. It was E.P. standing in as his supervisor who advised him to leave the village where he'd been conducting fieldwork, not very fruitfully, and join uh, the Sarakatsani, a transhuman uh, group of pastoralists. And uh, according to John's wife, Sheila, John wrote this letter saying, Oh, what should I do? What should I do? And um, and poured his heart out. and, and, And back came a telegraph response from Oxford, which read, Nomads, any day. In 1950... Uh, excuse the quality of this picture. I just uh, took it from the from the web. I couldn't actually find a good picture of EP. In 1950, uh, Evans Pritchard gave his Merit Lecture in which he asserted that anthropology was similar to history, the subject which he himself had studied as an undergraduate. He radically asked, quote, whether social anthropology, for all its present disregard for history, is not itself a kind of historiography, End quote. He saw no fundamental difference in aim or method between the disciplines of history and anthropology. Both seek to understand cultures and societies. There was only a minor difference. Anthropologists did this directly via fieldwork, while historians mainly used documents. A technical, not a methodological difference, according to E.P. This common methodology, and I must admit methodology is one of those troublesome words for me, I never quite know what it means, Um, This this, uh, common methodology of history and anthropology was one in which researchers placed a society in an interpretative framework. They tried to capture the people's understanding of their own action, the internal coherence of their world. E.P.'s essay marked the transition from function to meaning, as so many commentators have noted. Of all the various writings by E.P. that I read during my diploma year here, And my tutor, Nick Allen, who I see sitting there in the second row, marched me through a sizable chunk of the EP corpus, including newer kinship, a character-building exercise. Um, Of all of his writings, all of EP's writings, the two essays on history and anthropology, published in 1950 and 1961, attracted me like beacons and helped me to steer a course. I did not consider myself an historian uh, coming into anthropology. I was a classicist, fascinated by Homer and the Greek language. I was at heart a Francophile philologist, more interested in the writings of Emil van Veniste and George Dumaisille. Everyone around me always assumed that I was an historian because I was interested in ancient Greeks. But it was not until I got hired at UCL to run the joint degree course in ancient history and social anthropology with a joint appointment in history that I really began to think about history per se, My education as an historian began at at that point, through hands-on training, watching my UCL colleagues and trying to do as they did. What comes out of this background, then, is this lecture series on dreaming and historical consciousness in island Greece. For the most part, anthropologists have turned to history to historicize their ethnographic field research and deepen their understanding of the societies they study societies are always reacting to influences or internal tensions and, well, changing. Fieldwork occurs at a certain moment, not in a timeless, traditional present. Social historians, it hardly needs saying, have from their side looked to anthropology for comparative examples and theories that they may apply um, to understand past societies. Since the 1950s, the sub-discipline of ethno-history has grown up on the borderland between history and anthropology. Ethno-historians often undertake fieldwork to piece together the past of a people from the evidence of oral, oral histories, genealogies, artifacts, and archaeology. These are three of the best-recognized ways of combining history and anthropology, and of these three, my study works most Works most within the first, the straightforward anthropological concern, anthropological concern <coughs> to historicize one's ethnography. I do this in in the lectures that it will be coming, by examining a 180-year-old tradition of dreaming in the mountains of eastern Naxos. Although compiled from original historical sources and my own ethnographic research, I do not consider this contribute this contribution to ethnography and history to be the key contribution of these lectures what excites me more is the opportunity <coughs> is the opportunity my materials provide for exploring an emergent area of interest namely the anthropology of history and amazingly enough Evans Pritchard called for just such a quote sociology of historiography unquote in his 1961 essay on anthropology and history. Indeed, he went even further to call for a, quote, sociology of social anthropology, end quote. This type of study asks what a society assumes the past to be, for example, a past in relation to a present or a future, and it investigates when, how, and why people produce stories about the past, in short, how present social realities conditioned thought about the past. I'm not, of course, the first person to ever attempt an ethnography of historical consciousness, and I turn now to acknowledge some of my precursors. David Sutton's book Memories Cast in Stone, a study of how Greek islanders debate tradition and innovation, impressed me and inspired me because his technique was not to ask people point blank, what their history was, but rather to observe habitual practices or the ways people deployed key words, such as tradition and modernity, in everyday discussion, even when these discussions were not pointedly about history, but more about values and acceptable practices. In other words, his study emerged from a deep immersion in local culture and carefully collating oblique statements and actions that revealed the people's suppositions about how the present should acknowledge, embrace, or disavow the past. And I think of Matthew Hodges' uh, recent book. um, He's done something similar in that um, it's a study of living with history in rural France. Granted the incredible risks, uh, David Sutton's islanders uh, wondered whether it was still all right to throw dynamite sticks as a celebration of brave sponge divers who used to harvest unexploded bombs on the seabed. This is on the island of Kalymnos in Greece. And they used this dynamite that they harvested out of the bombs to, create, to make large firecrackers, in fact dynamite sticks, which they would throw um, on, on a um, given celebration date during the, uh, once a year. And they also did it to annoy the Italian colonizers during the Italian period, On On another topic, um, which David Sutton addressed later, uh, the question arose, should one eat fast food? You may well wonder. Um, Locals do not debate these matters in terms of history. They were not explicitly historical discussions. But Sutton could see that they were addressing their past and constantly debating their relationship to it. A graduate of the University of Chicago, uh, Sutton traced the impetus for his study back to his teachers, John and Jean Komaroff, who in their book Ethnography and the Historical Imagination challenged anthropologists to discover modes of historical production in other societies which do not take the recognizable form of Western historiography. This idea was explored earlier still by Michael Taussig, Uh, one often discovers that what was first in Talsig appears later in the Komarovs. (laughs) And in Talsig's, in an essay uh, entitled History as Sorcery, from 1984, which was reprinted in his Shamanism, Colonialism, and the Wild Man, a few years later, in that study he contended that spirits of the subjugated and brutalized lowland South American Indians, the Huitotos, that those images, when the spirits, when marshaled in shamanic rituals, could it be considered local appropriations of history. As he put it, quote, they are mythic images reflecting and condensing the experiential appropriation of the history of conquest, as that history is seen to form analogies and structural correspondences with the hopes and tribulations of the present, end quote. Italian feminists, for example, marched on Rome chanting, quote, we are the witches, returned, appropriating thereby the power of past figures. Towson considers such such cases to exemplify an embodied active historicization that did not pass through rational formulation, but which, quote, flashes up in a moment of danger, end quote, as Walter Benjamin uh, uh, expressed it and uh, Michael Taussig has has, uh, reused that quote from Walter Benjamin in almost every publication since 1984. He obviously uh, feels that there's something it's really saying, and I, I also feel that it's a very powerful insight or comment. Indeed, Taussig was already coining phrases such as active historiography in his 1980 study of Bolivian tin miners. These historical flashes, this past flashing up in a moment of need, in a moment where you're singled out by history, produced enigmatic, powerful, quote, picture puzzles, Freud's term for the manifest content of the dream, and these picture puzzles shock and compel attention. A murdered Huitoto, a witch, possibly also murdered. Uh, images of past violence, the undead, become sources of power to the present. Powerful imagery of the past, then, may barge into consciousness and create affective tensions and identifications between the past and the present. In Colombia, shamanic rituals produced histories, while in Bolivian, tin miners' ritual appeasements of the devil, known as tío, activated knowledge of the pre-colonial past. In Zanzibar, Kirsty Larson found spirit possession to be the mode in which people addressed their past. At the time of her research, the country was following a policy of Africanization that would hybridize the diverse strands of Islam, Christianity, and African culture. The possessing spirits, however, belonged exclusively to one or another of these historical pasts and forced people to recognize and reconsider their present identities and putative family histories. A pious Muslim, possessed by a Christian spirit, must rethink her position and acknowledge a Christian dimension in her past. In nearby Madagascar, Michael Lambeck found spirit possession to be a mode in which the Sakalava created history. More than one person could be possessed at the same time during their spirit possession uh, rituals, and and therefore spirits from different periods of the past could dialogue with each other in the ritual. So you would have an alcohol-swilling... A pre-colonial spirit uh, arguing and, and bullying a very polite French-speaking colonial spirit all discussing what the right view from the past was about, say, a given project in the present, such as building a, a new temple or something like that. In other places, such as Nigeria, among the Ohafia Ibo, studied by McCall, men link to the past through dancing and singing epic songs. These examples show two things. One, people produce histories in diverse forms, quite different from Western historiography, which uh, Western historiography which presupposes a verbal uh, representation, whether oral or written. And and by the way, Western historians are just as interested in these matters as anthropologists are. Um, for them, it's it's um, this idea of alternative. Uh, forms of historicization, alternative uh, ways of doing history uh, have been raised, um, uh, for example, in Rusin's comparative volume where where he looks at, you know, what's an Indian tradition of doing history, what's a Chinese tradition of doing history, and so on. So um, people have come to, even the historians have come to recognize and be fascinated by other ways of doing history other than um, straightforward Western historicism as it's become institutionalized since the 19th century. And one other uh, route into this interest for historians has been their interest in the past in the past. What did a past society, pre-modern, pre-enlightenment, think about its past at that time? What did an ancient society think about its past? I think of Peter Burke's uh, work, uh, the the Renaissance sense of the past was perhaps one of the very first works in that tradition. (coughs) So there's, there's other kinds of past other than the standard Western histor- historiography, historicism. Secondly, what these examples I'm adducing show is that people uh, may not consciously and willingly enter into historicization. They may, be, they may be possessed by a spirit or haunted by a ghost without wanting to be. Or they may enter into ritual practices without consider it, considering the historicizing dimension of their activity. They may, in other words produce histories unconsciously. And by history here, I mean the representation of the past where representation for me opens the possibility uh, possibilities beyond the verbal. Um, uh, so I have a very simple um, definition of history, as representations of the past. The main terms in my title for this lecture series, uh, Dreaming and Historical Consciousness, take up this relationship. Dreaming a type of imagining that occurs involuntarily below the level of consciousness and below the level of conscious control. And by historical consciousness, I mean not just which history someone knows, i.e., I know that I'm a descendant of Anglo-Saxons or German immigrants or ancient Greeks, but also their orientation toward the past as a temporal dimension freighted with particular properties and expectations. Do people think of the past as something that's linear, something that's cyclical, something that's spiral? I mean, there are many different ways of conceptualizing past as a dimension of, tem- as a temporal dimension. My thesis, to put it in very bald terms, um, and I do this for the sake of the audience so that you'll actually understand what I'm trying to say, although I did put it normally, um, you know, put it in, in, in such a ...scientistic, you know, hypothesis kind of way. My thesis is that, like spirit possession, dreaming may be a mode in which histories are produced. Furthermore, the very bizarreness of dreams may capture the complicated lived relationship between past, present and future. The study of dreaming, thus, may be a particularly fruitful angle for approaching an ethnography of history... Dreaming can take us deeply into the way in which the past is lived and processed in everyday life, and I shall have more to say about that later in this lecture. My next section is about the ethnography, which gives me a chance to show you some pictures. These lectures will draw on field research conducted since 1995 in the mountain village of Koronos in eastern Naxos. There it is. In addition, um, the lectures utilized textual historical materials, such as dream diaries, and (coughs) archival documents that I stumbled upon through the social relations that I developed in the village. My earlier research on Naxos, presented in my book, Demons and the Devil, was conducted in the village of Apiranthos. Koronos lies about 10 kilometers further along the road past Apiranthos. To get to it, you pass through a gap in the mountains that forms the gateway to the high places, Ta in local dialect, Ta if you're a Greek speaker, Ta So you're in the you're in the back of beyond. The district of Coronas looks outward. Um, Outward across the small islands of Donusa and Macares to Amorgos. I don't have I, this. Obviously, wasn't a clear enough day, but you can see one of the islands, you know, floating on the cloud there in the sea. And there's a kind of view with the village in the foreground. I'm, I'm standing above the village and shooting out. Um, although sighted at about four, five hundred meters altitude. Koronos is built into a nexus of ravines and it gives the impression of being low. I think that's, I think that's the uh, best picture of the, the way it's, and um, the earlier one of it being sited on the sides of the ravine. And the name Koronos was only adopted in the 1920s. Before that, the village was known as Vothri, which means ravines, literally. So it was uh, described by this. this um, Topographical feature the problem was that the, why did they change the name the semantics of the word Vothros or Vothry, um changed from the 19th century so whereas it meant ravine in the 19th century it meant cesspit in the 20th uh, and so um, that was embarrassing so they changed the name to Koronos after a nearby mountain uh, in the 1920s today when other islanders wish <coughs> to mock the people of Koronos not something that they necessarily do all the time um, they might call them vothriates, which is residents of the sewer, sewer dwellers. Um, or they might call them onirevameni, which means dreamers. And, but although, it's, although the word onirevamenos is in a dialect form and it kind of, kind of has a kind of hick sound to it. And it really means, it's always used disparagingly to refer to dreamers out of touch with reality. Sitting in the touristic port town of Naxos, a local, te- a local teacher learned that I was about to embark on a long stay in Koranos. She could not contain her derision, which went something like this: quote, "What are you going to do up there in the middle of the ditch with those crazy dreamers?" I, know that Koronos had, and I knew that Koranos had—I knew that Koranos had a tradition of dreaming, from my earlier field research when I attended the largest annual pilgrimage on Naxos at a remote spot. Uh, in the Koronos district called Argo Kili. I learned that villagers in the 1830s had dreamt of an icon buried in the earth. I could show you the picture of that icon. After many attempts to find it, on the day of the Annunciation in 1836, a man was lowered into the deep cavern that they had excavated. He was wearing a robe, but he was naked underneath so that he could not be accused of planting the icon. Lot of, uh, a lot of dissension in the village and a lot of critics thought that and they'd been talking about finding an icon that they might well just plant it, so they, it, it, that's why he, he descended in that way. He re-emerged with a tiny icon of the Virgin Mary, possibly the one pictured here, um, which is really about three inches by four inches, and it's encased in a silver plating, gold-colored and silver plating. Now. This icon was immediately held as a wonder-working icon, and people flocked to Argo Kili. Thus began the pilgrimage, which in time... Uh, that's a picture of Argo and the pilgrimage uh, at a certain moment, not the busiest moment. Um, in time, it was celebrated on the Friday after Easter, the feast day of the Virgin of the life-giving spring. But according to my interlocutors, the icon was stolen a year later, some said by a greedy policeman. And... Policemen are posted to these islands and these villages from outside the community so that they'll be fair But that very fact means that they don't have any allegiance to local morals and values So that they would be prime suspects for stealing something like your wonder-working icon Um, Now I stress that I'm relating the story as I heard it um, first in the 1980s This icon stolen or missing was not seen again until 1930 a schoolgirl, school lodging with her older brother in the port town of Naxos, dreamt that it was in their landlady's icon stand. They found this icon and took it back to the discovery site. On reinstalling it and celebrating it at Argo Kili, a new set of miracles occurred, including a gush of holy water from the dry rock. Shortly after this, five 13-year-old schoolchildren, the age mates of the first girl, began to report dreams on a nightly basis. Their dreams described flying altogether from the village to Kili, entering into the earth there, and conversing with the saints. In particular, they spoke with Saint Anne. This Saint Anne, like the Panahia, the Virgin, who spoke to the villagers in the 1830s, was understood to be an emanation from an icon of Saint Anne that lay buried in the ground. The children wrote their dreams in notebooks, and I've been able to look at 50 of these notebooks belonging to a girl named Marina. So I'll just give you a... It's not really the subject of the lecture, of, of this lecture, but it will be dealt with in, in, coming, uh, in coming lectures. These are, these are just some slides of Marina's dream notebooks. A 13-year-old girl, she wrote her dreams down on a nightly basis during this epidemic of dreaming in 1930, and she also illustrated the visions that she had. And so I've got... They were done, um, uh, that first was a black-and-white photocopy, but she did them in basic colored crayons, uh, the drawings sometimes. The Dreams of 1930 pushed the cult of the Panagia Argo Kiliotisa in a millenarian direction by stating that the discovery of the Saint Anne icon would presage major changes. These scenarios ranged all the way up to the Second Coming, but mainly focused on a beneficial change in the fortunes of the village. Various treasures, Thisavri, would be found. Um, These had been buried for safekeeping in the flux of island history. And the proceeds from these treasures would be used to build a major church. Pilgrims would come from all over the world and the village would become a major center. As things turned out, the villagers did not discover the icon of St. Anne in 1930, even though they dug a wide terrace, leveled out a whole hillside at Argo The villagers were no strangers to digging. They made their living by mining emery. There's a picture of emery miners from around um, 1900, 1910. Think of emery boards. But many of you probably are perplexed, I mean, what's emery? Emery a, a, um, is used for grinding. It's a, it's a very hard stone, one of the hardest um, stones there are. And it's crushed and the powder was stuck on paper. So the sandpaper was called emery paper and emery boards and emery files were kind of the last, most recent use uh, for them. Um, in some respects, their activities, that is, as diggers in the service of these dreams, resembled those of the renegade Protestant diggers, or true levelers, of the English Civil War period, who dug a hill on common land to expressively level out social hierarchy. Or one may compare them to Joseph Smith. Smith, the founder of the Mormons, dabbled as a treasure hunter. An angel showed him the location of gold plates written in a strange strange script which he translated and published as the Book of Mormon in 1830. I mentioned these two comparative examples to create a wider framework and to help you to locate the subject of this study in relation to familiar cases. The word compare does not mean that these various phenomena are necessarily deeply similar. Comparing, in my, in my usage, looks just as much for differences and contrasts that may reveal unobserved dimensions of the case at hand. Comparison strengthens the force of interrogation. The 1930s dreams revealed that a myth dream, quote, quote unquote myth dream, had grown up in Koronos. And I borrow this term, myth dream, from Ken Elm Burridge, um, a fellow North American Oxonian anthropologist, by the way, now a generation or two older than me. Who introduced it in his 1960 study of a millenarian movement, a cargo cult, uh, in a, in a, if that word, that expression is allowable, a millenarian movement in Papua New Guinea. With this expression, Burridge attempted to capture the messy diachronic development of millenarian movements. A teleology of redemption or windfall economic improvement remains a constant underlying basis. Which prompts people over the years and decades to watch for and interpret the signs of how it will happen. The scenario of redemption is the myth, accepted by society with very little dissension. The everyday attunement to it and the search for signs of how it will happen in the dream is the dream, in the sense of a daydream. Um, here's Burridge's definition of the myth dream Quote, Myth dreams are not intellectually articulate for they exist in the area of emotionalized mental activity which is not private to any particular individual but which is shared by many, a community daydream, as it were, end quote. In Mountain Naxos, the myth dream began in the 1830s with the discovery of the first icons and the Panagia's instructions in the dreams and visions that a magnificent church be built for her icon and to welcome pilgrims the church was not built initially, indeed, for reasons that I will explain in tomorrow's lecture, the government forbade its construction. Then the myth dream was expanded on the basis of dreams in 1930 to include the idea that an icon of St. Anne remained buried at Argo Keeley, the discovery of which would release the necessary funds and set the construction of the monumental pilgrimage church in motion. Ultimately, in the 1990s, community paragons exerted pressure and received permission and the support of the local uh, bishop to build the monumental church, which you can see here under construction, and you can see it in relation to the original pilgrimage church right there. And um, the original, I'll talk about the original, the, the conditions under which the original pilgrimage church was built and consecrated in 1851 in the face of government opposition. And This church has been under construction for ten years, and it's larger than Saint Sophia. And they've already installed the bells in the bell tower, and they are the absolutely the largest bells in Greece. And they were covered on Greek television when they uh, brought them install- and installed them. And which, which feeds into t- which, which, by the way, filled several fulfilled several prophecies of the myth dream, and it was rolled into the myth dream <coughs> when that all happened. So this church as I say, under construction, um, even though an icon of Saint Anne, uh, no icon of Saint Anne was discovered and no treasures unearthed. The proponents of the church nonetheless claim it as the fulfillment of the myth dream. Burridge's concept offers a framework for capturing the diachronic modification of of an original scenario. Even more importantly, for my purposes, it gives us a concept that addresses the circulation back and forth between public myths uh, individual or collective daydreams that activated and applied at specific moments, and personal nighttime dreams uh, that, that may subsequently be narrated, considered authoritative, and inserted to modify the collective version of the myth. As Burridge explains, for the Tango people of Madang district, quote, myths contain truths. Dreams are avenues for perceiving the truths which are later embodied in the myths. Dreams, through the dreams, you see new things that are true and by virtue of having been seen in dreams and by virtue, by virtue of having been established as true can be inserted into the myth. In other words, myths condition dreams and dreams may expand the form of myths by adding new truths. There is a circulation from the collective to the individual and back again. Myth into dream and dream into myth, but it is not a closed system. The daydreams and nightdreams potentially expand the myth and change its immediate form and emphasis, although usually staying within the given teleology. I move now to my next uh, section on dreams, themselves. When people in Greece or elsewhere learn that I'm a specialist on dreams, they often ask me if I can interpret their own dreams or those of a close friend or relative. I am completely useless at that enterprise. So many uh, personal biographical details, so many uh, recent historical events that occurred to people and contextual factors go into making up personal dreams. um, that, That no one, you don't have a chance really at understanding those kind of dreams unless you're really familiar with the person. Psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, close associates of the individual's concern have the best chance of insight into what those dreams might mean. Freud somewhere remarked, and I might be making this up, but I I don't think so, because I consulted with a London colleague, uh, Daniel Pick, who's a specialist on dreams and history, and a practicing psychoanalyst himself, and apparently Freud somewhere remarked, quote, no dream without the dreamer, end quote, meaning that interpreting a dream was impossible without extensive contact with the individual involved a relationship which also involved the possibility of transference, of setting up the conditions under which there could be uh, something that psychoanalysts know as the transference. Of course, Freud broke that rule um, numerous times in analyzing historical figures, but that's not the issue here. My point is that every night in Greece, ten uh, ten or so million people dream, several million will remember a dream in the morning. Anthropologists are not well prepared or well-placed to understand those sorts of dreams. We work better with dreams that have become elaborated social knowledge, such as the coroner's dreams that I'm talking about, or dreams that are regularly produced by social constraints, such as the vision quest of the Plains Indians of North America, where, as an initiation rite, boys had to survive on their own in the wild until they saw a vision. One could, Or one could cite the ancient Greek ritual practice known by classical scholars as incubation, where a pilgrim would sleep at the shrine of a god such as Asclepius in order to have a healing dream. But even having said this, it is of interest to attend to everyday dreams as an anthropologist, not to interpret them oneself, but rather to see how the people treat them. When I first embarked on this study of dreaming, I would regularly ask people general questions about dreams. And very often they replied to me, "Do Do you believe in them? That's what they would say over and over again. And this really perplexed me at first. Dreams are a fact. They just happen. Um, There's not an option here to, to believe in them or not to believe in them. They happen. They are dreams. Why would anyone be asking me that question? What they were really asking, I soon realized, was whether I believe that dreams come true in the sense of predicting the future. And I think this is the grassroots assumption about dreams in Greece. Uh, I hope I won't be mistaken um, for romantic, uh, uh, the wrong sort of romantic, if I say that the idea of dreams as predictive is continuous with ancient dream interpretation going back to Egypt and Babylon. This dream book tradition received a full and rich articulation in Artemidorus, a Greek writer in Asia Minor in the first century AD, in a volume he wrote entitled Onerocritikon, translated into English as the interpretation of dreams. The tradition, this tradition, continued through the Byzantine period in a variety of texts, such as the Onirokritikon of Ahmed, and many of which had circulated, had been circulating in Arabic before being translated into Greek. Perhaps they were first in Greek, translated into Arabic, then somehow came back into Greek. Um, many uh, the logic uh, versions of these uh, dream books have been available basically through the Middle Ages up to the present. The logic is always the same. Particular symbols mean certain outcomes, sometimes held together by opposition. For example, to dream of a wedding means someone will die. Sometimes the the symbol and and interpretation are held together by rhyme. Fish means sorrows. Saria equals laktara. Or eggs presage arguments. Avra equals Kavras. Many uh, Greeks know this. There is a widespread agreement all over Greece on the meaning of five, 10, 15 core dream symbols. Many like the wedding and death and Avra Kavras. Um, so, so there's a basis. Um, not only is everybody orientated toward the futuricity of dreams, but there is quite a, quite a, quite a uh, solid body of of onerocritic knowledge of, of which symbols mean what thing, which is Pretty well shared, not only synchronically, but fairly well diachronically as well. That's something I don't want to go into right now. Sitting one day with a group of teenagers in the village of Koronos, one of the boys narrated a dream he had had around exam time. He dreamt that he saw a pot, and in it were four snakes. His mother came and put the snakes one by one into a bag. The first three snakes were all the same, but the last one was a water snake, really big, terrifying snake called Nerovivi. This was the dream. He interpreted it to mean that each snake was a subject on which he would be taking exams within a few days. I inferred, my inference was that that last big, nasty snake was was his most difficult subject. Um, Getting them into the bag was a good dream since it meant he would pass each one. So I, I asked, why did your mother put them in the bag and not you? He explained that his mother had helped him enormously in the preparation for the exams. The snakes, rep- that snakes represent enemies everyone knows. That's another one of those avgha uh, one uh, correlations. Snakes mean enemies. That's very well known in, in, in Greece. So um, the co- that correlation is made in all the contemporary dream books and appears in ancient and medieval sources. So this was a fairly commonplace dream book dream that he'd had. Uh, Although it was dealing with a personal issue, his anxiety about exams and so on, it worked in a completely standard public symbols. A hardened Freudian might give another interpretation to the mother handling the snakes, but to insist on such an analysis analysis would violate local conventions and impede the understanding of Greek culture, I think. Dreams may concern personal worries, but the salient feature of popular dream interpretation is that it is orientated to the future, it is predictive. The future-orientated approach is the most common in Greece, but there do exist other traditions or other types of dreams. The psychoanalytic approach, uh, which permeates Western psychotherapies even when they diverge from strict psychoanalysis, has only caught on to a limited extent in Greece. One of the impediments to its spread is the fact that the psycho component in psychoanalysis comes from the Greek word for soul, psyche, and, um, and it crosses into the domain of religion. So normally only priests, um, perhaps a father confessor, are in charge of analyzing somebody's soul, in charge of doing something like psychoanalysis. I spoke with a psychoanalyst in Athens who told me that some dreams, which she labeled, quote, spiritual, should not be submitted to psychoanalysis. She told me that the last time she saw her father alive he persisted in telling her a dream where rats were chasing after him. Uh, After he was run down by a car the following week a friend disclosed to her that dreams of rats foretell death. In my view this was a straightforward predictive dream but it is significant that she referred to it as spiritual. Ultimately I would say that there are three main Paradigms of dream interpretation in Greece. Um, one is the onirocritic or the dream book tradition, uh, where dreams predict the future. Secondly, are dreams of saints or other topics that belong to Orthodox religion which may be considered miraculous, such as the dreams and that I've been talking about. By the way, the Orthodox Church has long opposed that onirocritic tradition from Artemidorus and the dream books as being. Uh, superstition, since only God may reveal the future. So that's the second one. So first was the dream book, Future. Second is the Church and the Saints. And finally, the third category would be personal dreams that may be addressed with the psychotherapeutic tradition, uh, which is only a relatively recent Western import that conflicts with both local paradigms. Um, This exclusion and suspicion between types of interpretation Uh, reveals to me that that these are really paradigms, that that paradigm is in existence. The conflict between psychoanalysis and orthodoxy over who was qualified to interpret the soul, I mentioned already. The clash between psychoanalysis and the onerocritic approach is equally profound and was the subject of an illuminating study by Simon Price, entitled The Future of Dreams, From Freud to Artemidorus, which my title today echoes. And by the way, Simon Price was my postgraduate tutor at LMH uh, when I was a student here and been a great mentor then and and since. He shows that although Freud borrowed the title of his work from Artemidorus and wanted to claim some affinity with Artemidorus, in fact, the two had fundamentally different approaches. Freud fairly summarizes this difference at the end of his um, large book on the interpretation of dreams. And I quote, this is the very last paragraph. And the value of dreams for giving us knowledge of the future? There is no question of that. It would be truer to say instead that they give us knowledge of the past, for dreams are derived from the past in every sense. Artemidorus saw dreams as future-orientated. Freud saw them as directed at the past. You might therefore think that my project of studying dreams as a route to understanding historical consciousness um, that in this project, I would I would have considerable sympathy for Freud's approach. Uh, I do not, however, think that dreams are exclusively orientated in one or the other direction, but rather in all three temporal directions at once, past, present, and future. If anything, I am most persuaded that dreams are about the present, but that the present is always emerging from a past, which offers models of action, and, and that also that we're heading, and dreams are heading, into a future uh, which the individuals, which individuals project with hope and anxiety. So i move on now to my, my last section on temporality and dreams. This temporal situation of existence underlies some of the most debated and developed themes in social science of the past 50 years. This is the question of human freedom to make choices any, at any moment at any point in time, uh, as it was raised by the existentialist tradition, notably, notably by Sartre. And on the other hand, there is the current of thought running from Durkheim that individuals are thoroughly subordinated to social rules. Bourdieu's theory of practice, formulated during the time of the, of the um, extensive debate between Sartre and Lévi-Strauss over the matter of indi- individual choice, versus structural constraint, basically attempted to square the difference. Bourdieu asserted that generally practice is deeply structured, but but that in certain situations it could violate the determining structural rules, and these violations could change the structure going forward. In my view, the Orthodox Christian dreams of saints and Koronos can best be understood in relation to this framework of temporality, (coughs) And to, the concept of ag- and to the concept of agency. One of the central terms of social theory over the past 30 years, agency continues to address the million dollar question in social theory, which I introduced a moment ago. Are we free to act as creative volitional individuals or are we constrained to act according to social norms and the rules of the game? Some writers, such as Sherry Ortner, have defined agency as successful action conflating it with a notion of praxis, meaningful, effective action in the context of a struggle against domination. Social analysts then come along after the fact and decide whether someone did or did not exercise agency. It becomes a retrospective sort of thing. I view it in more minimalist terms as action as opposed to inaction, making a choice, taking a decision as opposed to abdication, the opposite of agency is passivity, not ineffective or useless or symbolic action. The opposite of agency is not acting at all. In psychological terms, opposites of agency would be depression or catatonia. I understand agency is carrying forward the existential question of freedom, that is, how to act in the face of uncertainty. The formulations of the sociologist Emmer Bayer and Misch Offer a helpful further specification of agency. I just put that up there, but I'll, I'll sort of talk through the main points. This, reading stuff like this is really one of the occupational uh, hazards of being a social scientist. Um, the idea, but I'll, I'll talk through the main points of it. Um, the idea of agency addresses the human predicament of how to go forward at any present moment. Usually, this is not a problem, and we coast through much of daily life on automatic pilot. Agency really comes into question at moments of crisis, such as the 1830s on Naxos, when the villages of Koronos were incorporated into the Greek state, and they watched their emery resource get nationalized, and their religious wishes denied. Or, again, in 1930, when the girls were dreaming, during the Great Depression, when the community of Koronos felt anxiety over what lay ahead and they reached into their tradition of dreaming to find responses and they began to dig for a new icon. The issues of temporality highlighted by Emmer Bayer and Nish, were felt internally and are reflected in the content of Marina's dreams in which she and the other dreaming <coughs> children saw the future. That is, they saw prospectively the icon that they would find. They saw prospectively the profitability of Emery that would come to them. Um, They saw the millennial fortunes that would um, visit the village, that the village would experience. And at the same time, their (coughs) dreams looked into the past. They looked back to saintly figures, um, deceased people. Um, They looked back to they they looked back and found King Constantine, the last Byzantine emperor in their dreams. Um, They ruminated quite a lot about French soldiers who had visited Naxos 20 or so years earlier, um, and they, so they went to the future. They went to the past on the way to envisaging a course of action in the present. And that course of action was to dig for an icon. Their dreams were existential dreams that grew out from and reflect uh, and reflected in their content the temporal logic of agency. So the dreams related to agency in two ways. One. They furnished a source for social action or agency. They impelled people to act. And secondly, they modeled the temporal dimensions of agency in their content. The temporal bizarreness of dreaming, a common feature of dreams, matches up perfectly to the task of capturing the temporal contortions of existence. In the coming lectures, I will develop an analysis of the dreams on Naxos in the framework of a study of historical consciousness where, as we saw earlier, the past is sometimes appropriated as an empowering force to face the challenges of the present. Now, with the consideration of agency, I have hopefully deepened the understanding of the mechanics of how the past is drawn upon in the production of dreams. Dreams both in their interior form and in their social performance work through the problem of agency where a future must be faced using the tools and knowledge from the past. The process of establishing agency thus necessarily involves historicizing. But much as I am interested in the dimension of the past and history per se, the social engagement with the past cannot be separated off from the present and the future. The same may be said of prophecy. It may not be kept apart from the social engagement with the present and the past. I am aware that I've brought matters to a fairly abstract point, and rather than leave them there, I'd like to close with an illustration of what I meant, of what I mean, rather, from a recent book by the Swiss anthropologist Severine Rey, and it's about the cult of St. Raphael on the island of Mytilene. Just check how I'm doing. The villagers of Thermi on the Aegean island of Mytilene, also known as Lesbos, ancient Lesbos, Uh, found some bones when digging the foundations for a church in 1959. They placed these bones in a sack and left them under a tree. Shortly afterwards, they began to hear moaning sounds in the night, and various villagers reported dreams which told them over the following years that these were the bones of a monk named Raphael, martyred by the Turks in 1463, shortly after their arrival on Michelini. Actually, I thought I'd just give you a different uh, ocean view, <coughs> sea view to look at, um, rather than uh, Emmer and Mish. <coughs> so uh, the, the Bones, the, the Dream said that the Bones belonged to a monk named Raphael, martyred by the Turks in 1463, which was about the time that they arrived on this island um, after um, overrunning the Byzantine Empire and conquering Constantinople about a decade earlier. Further excavations uncovered a coin and a seal dating to the 14th century. These finds and the fixing of a named identity to the saint Saint martyr encouraged further dreaming on the part of more and more people. The dreams elaborated ever more specific historical details. Raphael was born uh, Georgios Lascaridis on the island of Ithaca, and he'd been a soldier or a doctor before becoming leader of a monastic community Near Thermi, the Ottomans tortured and killed him, and the Tuesday before Easter, in retribution for his support of resistance fighters. As excavations continued, more bones came to light, and these were identified through dreams as the remains of Raphael's deacon Nikolaos and of a twelve-year-old girl named Irini. As Severine Ray explains in her comprehensive and illuminating study. The local people collectively produced the historical narrative of Raphael, building on each other's dream narratives and the news of occasional archeological finds. Ultimately, according to the canons of professional history, there is no basis for asserting that a monk named Raphael lived and was martyred on a hillside above Thermi. The Church of Greece nonetheless canonized Raphael, Nikolaos and Irini in 1971, and a popular monastery Uh, stands on the site today receiving pilgrims from all over Greece. The story of Raphael has been claimed successfully by Christian history, even though it is not accepted by academic history. This case offers a good example of how dreams can offer histories, and it is important to note that the villagers were not, in this case, remembering a forgotten or once known set of facts. They were producing new knowledge through excavations and postulations similar to the way archeologists or historians work. Similar, not identical, um, certainly not submitted to as much uh, skepticism and rigor. Insofar as they were operating inside a paradigm of memory, they were remembering their own parents and grandparents, many of whom had been killed in the 1922 war with <coughs> Turkey. The villagers of Thermi who had the dreams and presented the, uh, pressured the church to canonize Saint Raphael and create a pilgrimage church at the discovery site were displaced people, they were refugees. They had arrived in Mitalini in the 1920s with little more than the clothes on their backs. The dreams of Raphael, murdered nearly 500 years earlier by, notionally, the very same Turks um, who had chased uh, chased them from their homes, These dreams allowed an outlet for their pent up sorrow and their grief. Now they could care for and bury the bones of St. Raphael, something that they had not been able to do for their own relatives whose bodies could not be recovered in the flight from Anatolia. In this case then, we can see perfectly how the past, and whether a true past or not, flashes up in a moment of need uh, and creates emotionalized analogies and correspondences between the past and, quote, the hopes and tribulations of the present, as, as I quoted Talcic earlier in this paper. Um, finally, the dreams of Raphael looked forward into the immediate future by telling the villagers where to dig to find relics and artifacts. The dreams were telling them where to dig on a, on a, on a week-in, week-out basis. And they involved action going forward, which led to a focus on the past, bodied up by their excavations, and gave them a case to argue for recognition and validation in the present. The logic of these dreams in this case is the temporal logic of existence and agency that I've been explaining here and which I will pursue in the coming lectures. Dreams come out of the present feed back into the, and feed back into the present, but not without a detour through the future and the past.